If you have a Bible or if you're going to use one of the Pew Bibles, please take it out and turn with me to Ephesians 6. We'll be looking at verses 10 through 20. And in the Pew Bible, it's found on page 1,156. We've reached the end of our sermon series on the second half of Ephesians. Uh, We started the series with sort of our our call as Christians, um, our call to forgive one another, and we continued on for this call to holiness, for purity, and we've been ending with our call on how, gospel, how the gospel will transform our relationships. So Paul ends his letter, this conclusion, by saying, finally. This is his last push. This is his, that, that, the call to put our faith and hope in Christ against a great enemy that Paul is going to warn us about. So this is a reading from God's Word, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord, in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we live in a dark world. We live in a world that is at war that is in the battle between your good creation, your goodness, your holiness, your grace, and against the sin and temptation of Satan. We pray that we hear this call seriously, that we take the call to know that there is an enemy who is trying to take us down. But more importantly, we pray that we hear the good news of the gospel, that you have won, that victory is secure, that it is finished, and that we can place our hope, rest, and faith in Christ alone. In your name, amen. The crowd was silent as the announcers were making their remarks, but Maximus the gladiator was getting ready for battle. Lock your shields, hold the line, stay as one. If you want to live, stay as one and stand. And as he finished that statement, the gates open and chariots come flooding into the Colosseum. And it starts out as a bloodbath. Gladiator after gladiator starts going down. But then Maximus yells, together, stay as one, stand and fight. The gladiators who listen to Maximus' commands lock their shields and start to win forth the day. The gladiators who go forth and attack on their own are taken down along with the gladiators who attempt and retreat. But the gladiators who stuck together, who stood their ground, win. 
And this is just one of the many scenes from great war movies that we enjoy watching. It could be Lord of the Rings. It could be Star Wars. It could be Independence Day. We enjoy these movies because they, at most of the time, have the good guys win. There's this calm before the storm. They stand their ground. They defend the defenseless. And at times, even someone will sacrifice their lives for the greater good. But that's not us. At least we like to think that way. <laughs> we live in Wilmington, Delaware. There's nothing like a great war going on around us. I have a good family. I have a good job. It's very peaceful where I live. I have a nice lawn. When we think of war, we think of the Middle East. We think of politics. Yet in this passage, Paul very much is telling us that we are at war. You, right now, sitting in this room, are at war at this very minute. And Paul is giving us our very own speech for battle from God, a speech that calls us to hold the line, to stand firm. But so much more than that, because unlike the battles that we like to watch in the movies, this battle is real. And there's a great battle going on for our souls we do not get a calm before the storm. We don't get to sit here and strategically think about the next move. No, it's happening right now, every minute of every day. We live on the battlefield. We don't get to come on and off the battlefield and decide when we want to fight. You need to fight today. And this is more epic than any war that has ever been shown on the screen because we don't fight against flesh and blood. We don't get to fight against an enemy that is seen. We have to fight against the powers of darkness, against Satan himself. And today, as we look at this passage, we're going to see three things that Paul wants to point out to us. That number one, we do in fact have an enemy. That number two, we have a warrior that will come and rescue us. And finally, we have a call to battle. So first, we have an enemy. We have an enemy that is real, and he schemes against us. But the problem with that statement is a lot of us don't want to believe it. A 2016 Gallup poll asked Americans, how many of you believe in a God? How many of you believe in angels? How many of you believe in heaven? How many believe in hell? And how many believe in the devil? 71% of those who responded said, I believe in some sort of God. I believe that there's probably a heaven, and I believe in angels. But drop 10% off of that, and only 61% of Americans said that they believe in Satan. A lot of us don't want to believe that there's evil. I like the idea that there's a heaven. I like the idea that I'm going to go to a good place. I like the idea that there's angels and there's a God watching over me. I don't like the idea that there's evil out in this world. And the problem is, is asking you right now, you might say, yeah, I believe in Satan, but let me change the question based on what Scripture really is calling us to consider and what Paul says in this passage. Do you believe that Satan is your greatest enemy, that he is strategically trying to crush you day in and day out, and that he is on the prowl to devour you? I don't think many of us wake up in the morning saying, yeah, that sounds about right. I think many of us try to ignore it. But Paul gets to the heart of our greatest enemy, and look back at verse 11 at the end of the verse. It says, take your stand against the devil's schemes, 
For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And a lot of times we want to think, if, if only people were good, if only we solved this one thing, if only there wasn't racism, then the world would be good. If only there wasn't sexism, then we would live in a happier place. If, if only there wasn't this evil being done by this specific person, this specific group, then, then the world could be considered good. But it's not true. Very clearly it says there's an enemy of this world. It is not flesh and blood. It is not other people. It's not that a person who annoys you the most. It's not the person who did the most damage to you in your life. And you say, if only this person would leave my life, my life would be good. That's not true. Even if that person left, there would be Satan himself who is trying to take you down. Think about all the darkness in this world. There has to be something greater than just people. Think about the national tragedies of 9-11, of the Las Vegas shootings, of sexual abuse, of the current strings of natural disasters. There is evil going on in this world. Think about the evil in your very own life where you try to come to church day in and day out when you try to do good and yet there's evil coming against you where there's death and there's disease and there's cancer and there are people in your life who are hurting you, who are emotionally abusing you, and there is evil in this world. And then think about your very own heart, where when you get caught in sin, you have to answer that question, what was I thinking? When you lie in bed at night and you have that sin that is hanging over your head and you think to yourself, what was I thinking? Why am I doing evil? Why is there evil? Why in my right mind I would never do that? But I did. And all of these things, you can take the approach that if only I was better or if only this person was better, maybe this is just evolution working itself out. Maybe it's by chance. Maybe it's by coincidence. Maybe if we just shared our wealth better. Maybe if there was a better government. Maybe if there was a better world, it would be good. But that's not true. As one author puts it, and I really appreciate saying this to some people, life is very confusing if you do not take into an account that there is a villain that you, my friend, have an enemy. The darkness that you see day in and day out on the news, the darkness that you see very much in your life right now is not because of the work of flesh and blood. It is of Satan himself. There is evil at work. There is a spiritual war going on, and you are in the middle of the battlefield. This world is in a full-out spiritual war, and the enemy is working for the demise of God's creation and to crush you and destroy you. And not only is Satan real, not only is, any, is the enemy real, but he schemes against us to make us doubt God's goodness and love. Satan's intention is to crush you, to destroy you, to make you fall. When this passage says to take a stand, his intention is to make you fall. There are times where it is in your face overwhelming and feels unbearable. Think about the story of Job in Scripture in which everything was taken away from him. Through thieves, through fire, through wind, through murders, his family, his possessions are gone. And it doesn't stop there. Satan continues his assault in which he 
gives loathsome sores to Job from, the, from his feet all the way to his head. And it's also that Satan says, if I crush your servant, he will curse God. He will shout out, let me curse God and die. So when we fall, when we, it's, it's those questions that Satan begins to make us ask when there's the overwhelming, when there's the death, when there's the disease, when there's the explosive relationships in which we look up to God and say, how can you make this happen? I thought you were all powerful. I thought you were all good. And Satan has won. Satan has used the darkness of this world, used his schemes to make you doubt God's goodness and love and power. And at times it's very bold, but at other times it is crafty and cunning. It's the schemes that Satan uses. Think back to the garden. It wasn't this bold assault that Satan had on Adam and Eve. It was this little lie that he put into their hearts that said, God is holding back on you. Why did he not let you take from that tree? He's holding back on you. He, he, he wants to restrict you. He's controlling. He's being abusive. And this is when we fall into the temptation of sin ourselves, doing something we never intended or never wanted to do. It's this descent into sin led by Saint saying, God's holding back on me. If only I got to do this thing, I'd have more fun. If only I got more wealth. If only I had this then my life would be complete. Think about those who are caught in the sin of adultery. It doesn't start with the full-on act of adultery. It starts very much with the thoughts and the temptation of saying, you know, I think my life would be better. I think I would be happier if I was in a different relationship. And it spirals down from those thoughts into an emotional affirmation by other people of saying, oh, this feels good. And then it goes deeper into playful touching and talking and texts. And it goes deeper and deeper and deeper until it's full on the act of adultery. And if you ask that person six months earlier, are you, are you ever going to do this? Would you ever commit yourself to an affair? They would say, no, never. That would never be me. But now they are because of Satan and his cunningness to make us doubt God's goodness and his love and believe that God is holding back on us. Our enemy knows our weaknesses and whether he boldly or cunningly schemes against us, he will exploit us in every way possible. And this I say all to make it very clear that we have an enemy, that the evil done in this world is not just because of one rogue person, it's because of Satan himself. And he has these schemes. He schemes of, against us every single minute of every single day to destroy us, to take us down, to make us doubt the God who rescued and loved us. He is a rebel of God's kingdom, and he's trying to attack God and attack God's people. But before we lose hope, before we say, what are we going to do? Let us look back at the passage because God has struck a blow to our enemy and he has brought forth a warrior who has won the day. And that's our next point. We have a warrior, a great warrior. Some of us believe going from here that, all right, let me, 
Let me, I, I hear you. I hear that there's evil. I have to start thinking about it. I, let, let, me, let me do some self-help. Let me, let me avoid that group of people that I've been hanging out with. Let me get the right internet filter. Let me do all these things. If I, I, through my own power, I can overcome Satan, and that's just not true. And there's the opposite of us who believe, I, I am overtaken. I am crushed. There's no way for me to see the good. There's no way for me to, to be able to see God. I, 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 can't, I can't do anything about this. And you're right, you can't do anything about this, but God can. Because Jesus is the warrior who can, did, and stormed the gates of hell to rescue us. And after rescuing us, he did not leave us alone, but he brought us his very own armor that we get to wear to protect and help us overcome the very schemes of Satan. And the imagery that Paul uses here is twofold. First, the imagery is, of course, of a Roman soldier. At the time, Paul's writing from a jail cell, and he was probably chained to a Roman soldier. So as he's writing about the armor that God gives us, he looks over and he says, okay, I see a helmet, I see a belt, I see a shield, and he writes about them. But more importantly, I actually believe that it is him pointing back to the book of Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, we hear this prophecy of a servant of the Lord, the servant of the Lord who is going to come and rescue God's people, who is going to conquer evil. And here's what it says in Isaiah 59, 16 through 17. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put righteousness on as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Do you see any similar language? This prophecy of the Lord flies in the very face of Satan's schemes that try to tell you God is not good, God is not all-powerful, because before time began, God had a plan. God had a call on a warrior who was going to come and win forth the battle, a warrior who was going to finish the war against Satan. And the battle that that was taking place on is called Calvary. The very armor that is spoken of in Isaiah and spoken of in Ephesians was worn by Jesus when he took the cross for our sins, when he was pierced for our transgressions, when he was crushed for our sins. He wore the armor that Paul writes about now. He wore the belt of truth that when the crowd yelled at him and called him a rebel and called him a disgrace, he had the truth knowing that he had the title of Savior. And he had the breastplate of righteousness. He was the only one at that time who could wear the breastplate of righteousness because he's the only one who lived the perfect life that we should have lived. And he had his feet fitted with the gospel of peace because when this violent and vicious act was going on, he had a peace that guarded his heart and mind from, from giving up and retreating and instead moving forward and winning the day. And he had, ultimately, the helmet of salvation, the very thing that he came to do to conquer sin and conquer sin and rescue us, that we once again would be united with God in a perfect work of Christ accomplished on the cross. When he said, it is finished, he wore the armor. Jesus defeated the devil at the battle of Calvary, and it is said best in Colossians 2, 13 through 15. He forgave us all our sins, 
having canceled the written code with all its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And what does this mean for us? Is that when Jesus said, it is finished, it is applied to us as well. When Christ took the cross. He took our filthy rags. He took our sin and nailed them to the cross and instead gave us his armor. This is the defeat of Satan and the rescue of us. In Ephesians 2, if you actually just go back a few chapters, it says that we were slaves to Satan, but raised now with Christ because of his grace, because of his work on the cross. Satan is defeated. And why? because Satan has no power over God. And at one time he had power over us. We were slaves to him. But now, because of the battle of Calvary, because of the cross, he no longer has power over us because we have the breastplate of righteousness. We have Christ's very own armor. It's this double imputation. It's the idea that Christ took our sin and now we have Christ's righteousness. We are united with Christ. And instead of sin defining us, instead of sin saying, you are this wicked, you are this evil, and instead of it defining our allegiance to Satan himself, now Christ's righteousness and Christ's armor now defines us as perfect and defines our allegiance to be with God. So we get to go in battle, not hoping that I'm good enough, not hoping that I'm smart enough, not hoping that I can do this, not hoping that I can go forth and win forth the day. But no, we get to go into battle knowing that we have armor given to us by God and his victory is secure. So it is true that we have an enemy in this world and that he schemes against us, but that is nothing compared to the work of the warrior of Christ who was prepared and given an armor to conquer the greatest war the greatest evil in all of the world of Satan himself on the greatest battlefield called Calvary and now we have the armor that we get to wear ourselves to stop the flaming arrows of Satan and continue to be covered in God's goodness and love and the good news is is that we get to go wearing this armor out into the world it's not just that we are covered and we lose and we, we continue to be weak and we continue not to be able to fight against evil. No, no, no. God has given us battle commands because there's the truth that there's still a fight that needs to be had. The war has been won. I want to make that very clear. But we know that there are times that we are wounded by sin and there are times that we outrightly sin. But Christ's victory is secure and cannot be lost. Think back to the end of World War II. If you know anything about the history of that, uh, the Japanese Navy was ultimately destroyed. I mean, there was no hope for them to defend Japan, and the Allies were planning an invasion. Everyone knew that the war was coming to a close. And it actually took an entire month before the terms of surrender were signed. War isn't over until the enemy surrenders. We know victory is coming. Victory has been secured by Christ, but there's still a battle to be had. Soldiers still need to stand their ground, even though the war is coming to an end. And our war has been won, but we are going to stand our ground in three ways, or we have a battle command in three ways, to stand, 
to be transformed, and to pray. So first, we're called to stand. Four times in this passage, you hear the call to stand. And I love what this says. This actually could probably be a movie quote. So when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, our main tool to help us stand against the attacks of Satan is the shield of faith. The very faith that enabled us to believe in God in the first place, that saved our souls, is the very thing that we get to return to over and over and over again. That when Satan sends his schemes, when Satan attacks us with his arrows, when Satan intends to harm us, we get to go back that our faith is strengthened and secured in the victory of Christ. What we're doing right now, the ministry of the Word, the worship of God, the sacraments, the, the, the times that we go to God in prayer is strengthening us so that we can go forth and stand our ground against Satan and his schemes. When Satan tries to overcome you, you can extinguish those arrows with the shield of faith. When he comes to you and tries to tempt you and say, you're going to fail into sin again, just come with me. This is a better place. This is, this, God is holding back on you. You can throw up your shield and say, my God is faithful and when I am tempted, he will provide a way out so that I can stand up underneath it. And when Satan tries to say to you, God doesn't care. Look how much evil has been done in your life. Look how much evil is out in the world. God doesn't love you. You can throw up your shield and say, God has loved me with an everlasting love and has drawn me to himself with an unfailing kindness. And when Satan tries to take the darkness of this world and cover up the light of Christ, we can say, the Lord himself went before me and will be with me, and he will never leave or forsaken me. I do not have to be afraid. I do not have to be discouraged. Our strategy, our battle call in this war against Satan is not self-help, not self-care, not self-defense, but to stand, to stand and be shielded with the truth the word and the work of Christ and our faith in God's promises and his love. And yet we do have one weapon that has been given in this armor that has been given to us so that we can transform the battlefield. Going back to the Roman illustration, um, if, if Paul was writing about the Roman armor, he was talking about a short sword. The sword of the Lord, the sword of of the word of God. And a short sword is only about two feet. And the question we can kind of ask is, why didn't God give us a bow and arrow for farther range? It's because God given, or it, sorry, well, it's what God has been highlighting in these past few chapters of Ephesians. It's about our relationships. It's about the context that we are in right here, right now, the gospel transformation that we can have in our very own lives. So often we have these grand expectations that I want to change the world or the only way to change the world is, is having a mass effect on people. But we get to actually use the word of God in our context in Wilmington, Delaware right now. In the daily realities of our life, we get to go back to the gospel and say, I'm going to use it to transform my life and not only transform my life, but transform the lives of other people. And think about it relationally. Think about those people in your life, whether it's, whether it's co-workers, whether it's friends, whether it's family, whether it's that person at the coffee shop. You get to go and take them the gospel and say, listen, I, there's a lot of evil in this world. Things are hard. Things are difficult. But we have a warrior. 
We have a warrior who has victory, who's one-fourth the day, and we get to use the sword, the Word of God, not based on my own strength, not based on me convincing you of how smart I am, of how I figured it out, but instead we get to focus on what God has given us, this tool to spread the good news of the gospel. And hear me very clearly, the context that God has placed you in is the perfect context for you. You have been chosen. You have been placed on the battlefield. God has a purpose for you to go forth and spread the good news of the gospel, to use the word of God as a sword to transform this world that is at war with Satan. So we have the bottle call to stand and to transform and also to pray. The passage ends with saying this, verse 19, Pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. Paul, who is literally writing the gospel, being chained in prison. Paul, the guy who probably memorized most of the Old Testament. Paul, the very one who met Christ, is not standing there saying, I know it, I got it. He's actually looking to other believers. The very ones he's writing the gospel to is then their response to pray for him. And he's going to pray for himself. Our strategy, our call, our battle cry is to pray to the one who's given us the armor, God himself. Because ultimately, our strategy will fail if it's based on my strength. It could be if, if, if I just pray more, if I just read my Bible more, if I just come to church more, then I'm going to get stronger and I'm going to get wiser and then I'm going to be able to overcome Satan because, because I'm smarter then. And that's just not true because it's based on your strength and you're going to fail. And then there's the opposite end of us. If, if, if I'm going to be able to transform the world because I have a good strategy for evangelism, I have money, I have resources, I have energy, it's all based on my ability that this world's going to be transformed. And that's just not true either. All of our strategy, all of our work, all of us going into this battle in this world has to begin and end with prayer. Being in constant relationship and communication with our commanding officer, with the one who rescued us, with the one who brought forth the victory, brought us into battle and cares for us and nurtures us, especially when the evil comes. So our battle cry, our strategy is to stand, transform, and pray through any trouble, through anything that Satan might send, any flaming arrows that he might shoot at us. We are able to stand when we have done everything to stand. And there's a story of uh, an old man who uh, is bedridden at the end of his life, but he continued to profess Christ, and he actually professed Christ to the point of sending letters and making phone calls uh, to his local town. And uh, most of the town knew him as this crazy old man who likes to talk about Jesus. Um, so there's this young man, arrogant, who comes to the old man and says, I hear you believe in God, but how can you, with being bedridden, with the town laughing at you, dissolving into ruin, don't you doubt God's love? At times it's hard, the old man admitted him. Sometimes Satan sits on my bed 
and points out the window to where I used to run and work and be able to see the world and asks, does Jesus love you? And at times he sits on my bed and he looks around at all the letters and the phone calls that I've made and how some people haven't responded at all and some people actually responded in anger and again asks, does Jesus love you? And finally, Satan points to all the people who are my age, who are still walking, who are still living, who are, who are still having relation, good relationships with their family, who seem to be having fun. And he looks me in the eye and he says, does Jesus really love you? And then I remember, I might not be able to stand in this life, but I am able to take a stand against Satan with the armor of God that he has been given to me. So I take Satan to the battlefield called Calvary, and there I point to the thorn-tortured brow, to the nail-pierced hands, to the nail-pierced feet, to the spear-wounded side, and I ask Satan, doesn't Jesus love me? Doesn't Jesus love us. We are at war, and we have an enemy, and I don't make light of this. Our enemy is real, and he schemes against us day in and day out. That's going to make us doubt God's power and God's goodness, and at times it can feel like there's no light in this world at all, that there's no goodness, that how can God allow this to happen? Yet we have a greater warrior who has worn the armor that he used to defeat Satan, and now he gives us that very armor. The saddest day in the history, the one that we would look at and say, the battle is lost, the warrior has been killed, is actually the greatest battle in history because that's the one in which Christ was resurrected and Christ said, it is finished. And we get to have that strength and have that armor from Christ, not our own strength, not our own ability, but we get to go to God and be able to have a battle call to stand and to transform our context and ultimately to return to him over and over and over again in any battle in our life in prayer, knowing that we can call out to our Father and he will be there to care for us and nurture us and rescue us. So now that when Satan asks you, does God really love you. You can use the armor of God to extinguish that flaming arrow, and you can stand replying, yes, Jesus really loves me. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, it is difficult. It is hard for us. It is hard for us to understand how there can be evil and darkness in this world, and yet victory has been won. I pray that we continue, though, to go back to the gospel hope that is not based on our ability, that is not based on, on what we do. It's not based on us just going out and, and making everything right, but instead it's based on us returning to you over and over and over again, continuing in prayer that you will strengthen us, that you will guide us, and that you will protect us. We thank you that our victory has been secured, that the war is coming to a close. Even though it's hard, even though there's still battles to be fought, we know that you have one-fourth the day. And we pray we go into our context today, transforming the world through your power and your gospel of grace. In your name, amen.